Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I write my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And I am delighted today to be joined by educator, author, speaker, wife, mom, and woman in recovery, Dana Bowman. Fans of her 2015 release, Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery, will be thrilled to hear that her follow-up book, How to Be Perfect Like Me, uh, which is released by Central Recovery Press, will hit the shelves this week and continues her narration of her slightly less than perfect life as a working mom in recovery. It is a great read to uh, lighten your mood because Dana is as cheeky as she is insightful, and I am delighted to welcome her to the Bubble Hour today. Hello, Dana. Thank you. Hi. It's so fun to be here. I love bottles. I know. I love bottles. I love this podcast. It's one of my favorites. Oh, we've been around for a while now. You know, every once in a while I go back and I pull up an old show and listen to it because just everybody feels like a friend on the show, and it's it's um it's really neat. And in fact, yesterday I was walking my dog and I listened to the interview you did with Ellie and Amanda in 2015, talking about bottles when it was released. Yeah. It was really neat to read your book and then kind of go backtrack and, and hear you talk about your first book. So uh, yeah, I'm really well, excited is, to have you on. I was so stoked. Cause that's why I, I bobbled this at the beginning because I was thinking bottled and bubble hour and then I mixed them together. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> but I'm just so excited. And I'm not very good at talking, which is not always good in my profession, but you know. <laughs> it's, the best. it's the best and I'm not perfect. I think you talk real good, Dana. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, congratulations on on this book. Um, it is. I mean, you're a busy you're a busy lady. How you find time to write, I cannot imagine. But um, <laughs> we'll talk about that in the show today. But first, I want you to tell me a little bit about what this new book means to you and what you hope uh-huh. writers will ta- uh, readers will take away from it. Okay. Well. I I I love this book. Okay? And I kind of look at it as bottled was easier to write in many ways. It kind of flowed and came out of me as just a story with the beginning and middle and end and I was writing it for a specific kind of a specific audience, although I think it's wider than that, but for moms who are really early in the recovery thing and anyhow, when perfect started and I started working on it, and writing it, it was so much harder to write. And because it actually tells the story of my relapse, and which is hard to write about, first of all. But secondly, it was just not quite as tidy and um, chronological. And it, it, it really, at times, was fighting back. It seemed like I'd go to bed and stare at the ceiling and be like, holy cannoli, what have I even written today that makes sense? And, and that was so perfect in terms of how I look at my recovery it is very, um, at times, it seems like a constantly expanding circle, but there are other times when it is a tangled mess, <laughs> and then you go back and you revisit, and you're like, did I not get over this, like, six years ago? What's going on, and why am I revisiting <laughs> this now, and what the heck, and have I not grown up enough, and, you know, <laughs> and it's just, it was a, a lot more difficult to write, and it was a lot 
more um, challenging for me to get it on the page. And now that it's done, I just, I get so emotional. I do. I get, I just love it. And I'm proud of it um, because it is going to tell the story that continues. I think Bottled was great. And I think it was a nice triumph book for many to read and go, yes, oh, she understands. She gets it. Um, but now with Perfect, it's even more raw and revealing in the sense that I wasn't done, and, and no one in recovery is done. And when you start to think that way, trouble uh, can happen, and thus that's how the relapse occurred, and then I decided to tell everybody about it. <laughs> it strikes me as a really vulnerable thing for you to share. Did you feel additional pressure yeah. because you do have a book out about recovery? Did you really have to work not to pigeonhole yourself into some kind of an expert role or a or an expectation of perfection for yourself because you have written a book about recovery did that make it more vulnerable to share oh my that gosh. you <laughs> did you like call my therapist <laughs> here's the deal i i will pinpoint and if my husband was here he would be laughing because these are the conversations i would have with my husband after writing you know all day then he'd come home and the conversations would go like this why in the world would people want to listen to me? I had a relapse. I am not, an, I used the word expert. I'm not an expert. And my editor kept sending me emails, like comforting me. I needed so much comfort. I was like the hugest whiny mess. She's like, Dana, no, you're not an expert. You just experienced it. And you need to write about your experience. And, and I'm like, but, but <laughs> no one's going to, I'm a fraud. I'm a phony, you know, and all this. And, and I had already relapsed with bottled when bottled came out the relapse had already happened i knew that it wasn't like i was trying to fake it i just didn't cover that part of the story in that book because that would have been a quote a whole nother book so it wasn't like some big reveal that i wasn't aware of but at the same time yeah there were times i'm like this is this is ridiculous nobody's going to want to listen to me and say oh she messed up um but it took a lot of, and it's just ego, it took a lot, a lot of stepping back and saying, okay, what's your thing, Dana? Your thing is writing. That's what you do. It makes your heart, you know, hum. And so that's how I know I'm supposed to do it. What's your other thing? Talking to other people about recovery. So you have to talk about this. Like this is, you're like on the tracks to do this. You're locked and loaded. And it's not like I didn't want to, but at times I just felt like, yeah, like I felt like people would think, oh, you know, she messed up, therefore I'm not going to read her book because it's, you know. But I, I think generally speaking, people will like it in the sense that it's just more of what recovery is all about, you know. Mm-hmm. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? I feel like I'm kind of babbling at this point. No, but, no oh, and recovery so is messy, insecure. right? It's, yes, it's like so messy. Sometimes it's like two steps forward, one step back one step forward, two yeah. steps back, but little by little, we and eventually sideways, make our way forward. Yeah, sideways. And then you're, then you're flopping. Over the dog. And then, you know. <laughs> but I, and I feel like, too, like my husband kept saying it. He's like, why did you call the book what you did? You were trying to prove to people. Because I wanted the book to be perfect while I was writing it, and which was the hugest, like, irony. You know, I mean, irony basically came and lived at my house and kept slapping me, like, every five minutes. Like, wham, <laughs> what, you know what are you even trying to do in your pants? And I, I get it. Like I, it's, it really dragged me. Um, it, I actually wrote a blog post about it just recently. I said, I wrote a book about being perfect and it nearly broke me. And it was, 
it was really funny because here I am trying to tell people that I'm not perfect and ha ha. And then at times though, it really, it was another learning, totally humbling and life is funny. (laughs) Well, let's have you read that from it. I know you have something queued up that um, you would like to share. So would you like to read a little bit for us? (laughs) Sure. Um, Okay. So I have a couple parts and Oh my gosh. I have a couple parts. Sorry. My phone just buzzed on me. And I, this is chapter four, how not to be an alcoholic. And one of the things that I wanted to say is that um, we tried to set up the book or I tried to set up the book to be one of those snarky, like how to things. Cause I always think those are so funny when I'm reading, I you know I'm not reading. I'm like scrolling through the internet and I'm bored. It's like how to have the perfect marriage in three steps, you know, and <laughs> like, there, you do that, and boom, it's all good. Or, you know, <laughs> how to achieve inner peace, five easy ways. <laughs> That's going to happen. So I set up each chapter with a how-to thing, and then at the end of each chapter, there's kind of, it's not the same as Bottle where there's the list at the end, that there's like little kitschy little graphics and things. Um, so this one is chapter four, how not to be an alcoholic. And I'm not reading, I'm just going to read part of it. It starts where I'm at the ther- I'm at my therapist, and uh, partway through my recovery journey, I got into therapy. I really loved it, and then I started to kind of get bored, and I felt like I was kind of done, which is okay. I mean, there can be times when therapy should come in of your in your life and then go out again, but I kind of felt like I was all good, um, which can be a red flag, and it ended up being a red flag for me. So let me see. Uh, I'll just start here. My problem was that I was getting a wee bit tired of just walking all over the place. I wanted more glitz and glamour. Walking is so pedestrian. And that that was from my therapist's um, constant request that I stopped trying to speed about with everything that I did and check off the list. I'm wondering if anyone can relate to this. <laughs> and can I just take it, quote, one day at a time, you know, all those things that I'd heard. And so it was annoying. Um, and I had just finished telling her this dream that I had had about buttering toast. And I was really ticked because I was just having these really boring dreams about buttering toast and <laughs> just ridiculous. My life was so boring and I was whining. So initially in recovery, I was seeing Joan, my therapist, about once a month. And however, it had been more like once every two months now because my schedule had been swamped. When we caught up, but I kept eyeing the clock, wanting to make my time with her worth all the money that I was spending. And yet, there was nothing to talk about. I was good. The marriage was good. The children were still good. And we were all good, just walking along. The landscape was clean and simple and de-alcoholed. And I was bored out of my flipping mind. The whole buttering toasting, it's like, I don't know, it took like an hour, and that was it. I buttered two slices of toast. No response from Joan. Helpfully, I pantomimed a knife spreading butter. I can still hear the stupid knife scritch scritching across it. Still silence from Joan. I didn't even get to eat the toast, I complained. Joan began doing that head tilting thing that she did a little more, and I wondered if she would get a neck ache. She tilted it a lot for me, but she hadn't written anything down in her notebook the entire time I was there. Clearly, this toast material was lacking. Had I run out of things to say? Did Joan and I need to break up? There was silence. I looked around the room. Joan had a new Scentsy candle that smelled like a cupcake on steroids. I took a breath, and I searched for more. Oh, so my husband and I had a fight the other night. 
I noticed Joan visibly brightened, and I wondered how often the inner Joan deflated a little at the whole, please analyze my dream thing. Was there ever a time when the inner Joan thought, oh, for God's sakes, not the Muppets in the shower dream again. It is just too weird. Can we just call a spade a spade and decide that that dream is totally nuts? Which I have had, by the way, a Muppet in the shower (laughs) dream. I prattled on. That's probably like a whole another book right there. Uh, I prattled on. She said very little. And I found myself again in that weird counseling place where I wondered if I was supposed to keep talking. Joan continued to tilt her head and stare. The scentsy candle was more responsive. I felt like I was stuck at a four-way stop and everyone was staring at each other. Joan was either incredibly patient or writing a grocery list in her head, either one. Yeah, it was horrible. I was mad about, and then I sort of stopped because I realized I didn't have a glamorous description of what I was mad about. In fact, the whole about part was elusive, similar to trying to remember that one guy name, one guy's name from that one movie you saw once. You know the one with the dog? I don't know why I was mad. I was just mad. There were these jalapenos, and I hate jalapenos. Like, I really hate them. And I eyed her to make sure she understood how deeply I hate jalapenos, and she nodded. And I channeled my inner Eeyore, and I sighed. But I know Brian loves jalapenos, so I put jalapenos in the salsa. Joan's head tilted so much to its side, she looked like she was shaking water out of her ear. And I slumped a little on the sofa, and I said, it was silly. Please, Joan, I thought, just say something. Tell me it wasn't silly, and I need to book an emergency getaway spa vacation in the Caymans because I am so stressed. Tell me my husband is a jalapeno-eating piece of... How did Brian respond to you? She finally asked. She seemed awfully interested in Brian. Did he decide to engage in your... And then she gestured a wide circle at me. Stuff? The word stuff from Joan is like summing up Sybil's multiple personality disorder by describing it as, quote, a little glitchy, end quote. I took a breath. He didn't at first, but then after a while, there was this yelling, and he said I was overreacting. I told him he was a douche. It was typical married stuff. Again, tilty head from Joan. And I mustered a weak smile. I'm over it. This is the deal with relationships. Rarely in any utilization of the phrase, quote, I'm over it, is that actually the case? So that's from how not to be an alcoholic, <laughs> chapter four. Oh, I love that passage. Yeah. I thought it was so funny. I just thought it was hilarious. I could so relate to just having a boring dream and keep waking up and you're like, can this move really? on and go back to sleep? And you're just like buttering toast. I thought that was hilarious. Buttering and also toast the, in my life. And, and yeah. the, I when us codependents go to therapy and we're trying to read our, <laughs> we're trying to please the therapist, we're trying to give her something. She was so bored, and I was so bored. We were all bored. I really wanted to give her some good stuff, but I didn't have anything. All I had was the jalapeno fight, which I actually described earlier, and it's it was pretty pathetic. But I I don't like therapy to this day. I still cringe at it, and I always think I've got to come up with better stuff for them to like listen to this this has got to be more exciting in some way and it never is so yeah well I love therapy I think you just need to find a good one that doesn't make you talk and just gives you lots of homework that's that's the kind of therapy I like yeah yeah well do that my question for you after giggling through that passage you just read is that are you always funny or do you just have a funny narrative voice in your head that comes out when you write you know, <laughs> I had someone asked me that in an interview once, and I thought, 
I don't know. Like, <laughs> this is how I am all the time, and I really don't do – like, it's awkward for me to read for my book. I'll just say, like, when I was reading the part – when I was reading it, in my head, I'm like, oh, darn it. I picked a part with dialogue, and then that's always weird because I'm, like, reading right, my own do voice. Do I do and his I think, voice? And <laughs> yeah. Do I do weird voices, or is, should there be sock puppets involved? Like, I don't know. But I am kind of um, – I've been told – like this a lot so <laughs> I don't know you'd have to ask the people around me I, I definitely think um snark is like my my love language so yeah <laughs> but when I write it does come out a lot stronger and that that was something that when CRP came to me and asked me about writing bottle the first book they said and I think I've said this before he came to me and they're like Jaina we want you to write about alcoholism like the deep, dark, gritty, inner turmoil and pain. But can you be funny? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I can totally be funny about being an alcoholic because that's really all I know. And it's not all funny. I'm, I'm not going to make it sound like this book is just, you know, hilarious. Um, but, you know, simple unicorns and kittens and funny, funny all the time. But I think that comedians oftentimes speak from a lot of pain you know and that's that's how we heal and to me laughter is a leveler helps bring us all kind of on the same level so yeah that's how I that's how I roll I like it and I think also when we're when it's sort of couched in humor is that the right word couched sandwiched something when it's presented with humor sometimes we are able to go a little bit deeper into the darker stuff because you know, yeah, yeah. We realize, oh, good. So, well, I I heard someone say one time that um, uh, if you stand in the hallway and there's an AA meeting at one end of the hall and an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the other end of the hall, or sorry, uh, Al-Anon meeting at the other end of the hall, so like <laughs> Alcoholics in Recovery versus yes. family members in recovery, the AA meeting is like laughter is yeah. coming out of the They're door. They're having like and the, the time of their lives, yeah. Yeah, and then the, and the poor, the poor like Alan on sobbing. Like, <laughs> I hate those oh. people. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can totally relate to that on both ends. Okay. So well, We do have to laugh about yeah. it sometimes. But you do talk about some yeah. serious things, and um, one thing you, you talked about is some advice your dad gave you on your wedding day, I believe, right as you were about to walk down the aisle. And yeah. um, and yeah. uh, he suggested that you uh, go into your marriage with without expectations, no expectations. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think he meant, and how did the wisdom of that reveal itself to you? You know, that actually that moment is so drilled into my memory my dad is kind of famous for this like Vulcan death grip thing that he does on your elbow that like immobilizes you, makes you, you can't even walk or talk. And I, I remember he did that right before we were like walking down the aisle and then he whispered it, no expectations. And I thought, what a lousy time, dad, come on. And yet it does fit because my dad's in recovery and I think he understands this whole thing that I have about my life. I'm always looking for the next big thing. I'm always looking for the next thing to look forward to. I'm always looking for, quote, big fun. And it's it's something inherently wired into me. My brother was the same. My dad's the same. We have these tendencies towards drama, I, bet, I guess you'd say, and wanting to, quote, live these, this big life, right? But 
it's very difficult to do that when you're just trying to, you know, like live a normal life at the same time and sort of be a basic adult and human. And <laughs> living a big life every day is not possible unless maybe you're Celine Dion or, well, I don't even know if she lives a big life right now. I haven't seen much from her lately. But all I know is that she, you know, it, it is not realistic. Okay, and especially when I had kids, quote, big life and big fun kind of went sort of out the, down the drain at that point. And I was stuck at home with two kids. I make it sound horrible, but yeah, it's kind of horrible at the beginning. But it was just really very isolated and alone. And I, I wanted that unfolding, you know, and I didn't get it. And my expectations were constantly battering up against what I thought my life was, which I thought my life was small and boring and, you know, the, the buttering toast dreams. Like, what, you know, why can't, why can't I have dreams like I'm flying? Everyone gets to dream of flying. Why don't I get that? And it all was because of expectations. And we, we wake up every day, or at least I did for the longest time, kind of wanting the, my day to plop itself in my lap with this wonderfulness. Like, what are you going to give me today, Jay? Like, what am I going to get from you today? What are you going to do to make me feel good? And where's the show? And, and why am I not invited? And why am I not going? And where's the big feelings? Where's the big buzz? Where's my buzz? And, of course, wine answered that question a lot until it stopped. And then I had to start dealing with life on life's terms and boy at the beginning you feel like your life is kind of pared away down to nothing when you first get sober and you think life is just this horrible slog through sobriety but you know then things start to lift and get better and I have really started to learn that no expectations is actually the freest and most peaceful and content way to live and I can't remember the name of the chapter I wrote it, but gosh, I can't remember it. it. It has to do with marriage, and I talk about how a low feeling, like a low level feeling marriage, that is like so not how I worded it. But um, like, I don't need a, a marriage with my husband that's like a Nicolas Cage movie, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> except without the mullet. <laughs> but like, you know, some some heroic movie where he's saving me or we're running towards each other and there's something exploding and um, you know he just got released from prison or something I don't know but I, I'm pretty content with our life being kind of just this sort of ho-hum married life you know we fall asleep sometimes we actually fall asleep at the same time like he comes to bed when I come to bed that's rare and sometimes he'll hold my hand and I'll fall asleep holding his hand that's all I need right now you know I don't need the big huge um romantic gestures and stuff like that anymore and I try to explain that and I really wish I could do a better job because it really makes it sound like that's just dull (laughs) but but when I backed off on expectations and expecting like especially like also for my children you know if you expect your children to be well behaved and well dressed they're gonna like puke and have a tantrum at the same time like it's just it's gonna happen and so when I kind of when I kind of dialed it down with them too, and stopped wanting my children to be perfect and well dressed at all times, there's a great David Sedaris book, kind of around that same title that I just love. My children will wear corduroy or something. I just love it. The pop, the the whole thing about your kids must be well behaved and quiet, 
when I kind of lower those expectations, I really enjoy my kids a lot more, and I enjoy my own life a lot more. And I do get to have those big, but you know what? They're not frenetic, and they're not like, um, oh, gosh, I don't know what the word is. It's sort of like Christmas Day when you have all those huge feelings, and then you feel sad when they're gone. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's more like they're these gentle nudges from the universe with real gratitude attached, you know, you know, I, I had lunch yesterday with a normie and she was discussing something like this about, I think it was about, you know, having high expectations of employees or something. And, and, um, I said, you know, there's this thing that sober people say, and she knows I'm sober, but she just like has no contact with this world, you know? And, um, I said that expectations are resentments waiting to happen. And she was like, oh, my gosh, like, I have to write that down. <laughs> Tell me that again. <laughs> Aren't but we awesome? Really... We sober people are so awesome. I know. We have it. We have the <laughs> we have whole the best world advice. by the tail. <laughs> but it sounds to me like what you're talking about is really being in the moment with your kids rather than it's if you have expectations, you're kind of a moment ahead of them trying to control where they're going to go. And like you said, like, good luck with that. Um, yep. Yep. And Drinking is all about trying to not be in the moment. Sobriety is about learning how to live mm-hmm. in the moment and survive. And um, mm-hmm. that's the whole, or that's the whole thing me, about it. For me, too, sorry. For me, too, it was also about drinking was about <clears throat> taking my moment and, like, turning it up. And I wanted my moment. Like, I didn't try to <clears> – <throat> there was two types of levels of drinking for me where – Initially, when the drinking was kind of red flaggy, but and getting, I was addicted. I was an alcoholic, but it was towards the earlier stages, I guess. Um, it was all about taking my moment and turning it up. And like, it's like that spinal tap, it goes to 11 thing where I'm like trying to make every day that, you know, zip it up there. And then yeah. at some point, and Carolyn Knapp in Drinking Love Story talks about this. She, she talks about how it went from that to now I just want obliteration. That's when mm-hmm. that was towards the end of her addiction. And it was the same with me where I no longer wanted to turn up my life. I wanted my life to end basically. And then that's when I just started numbing out and then the numbing out got really intense, really fast. So, yeah. Mm. Yep. There's um something you write about too, about that feeling of um, having to sort of, overcome shyness and anxiety to promote your book and yeah. you talk about making a less than graceful entrance into a into <laughs> a, a writer's uh, group uh, when you were there to promote your book and feeling like oh great like now what do I do but um, I, I definitely relate to that and I think a lot of um, people listening you know, even if you know they're not writers like all of us I think are sort of called on at times to come out of our shell and like sell ourselves or be on or be public. Yes. And there's like that, yeah. there's that sort of um, duplicity, I guess, to being some, a creator of things in a lot of ways, because being, yeah. for me, I used to write music and then, uh, which I did oh. alone and I loved that. And then oh. uh, but when I came time to perform it, I'd feel like I was naked on stage because I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. I wrote this song about my deepest, darkest feelings, and now I have to sing it for this room full of people. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> yes. And do and, you ever uh, feel like you're you're thinking the audience is going to be like, come on, who do you think you are? You know, and I, I constantly have to struggle with that where, 
it, it's, I feel like sometimes I get caught in this weird headspace where I think people are like, she's using her alcoholism to become famous. And, wow. and I actually got that thrown at me a couple of times where I was basically told I was doing this to get famous. <laughs> I'm like, I think I might've picked a different angle, but okay, I can see why <laughs> if I'm going to be famous then I might as well be the drunk one. Okay. But, um, it's hard. It's hard. I just did this today thing where it's a spot on the today on today.com and they had to come to my house, Jean, and film at my house. And, and then they <laughs> filmed my life for like two days under, you know, it was like under a magnifying glass. And the whole time I'm like, I'm so uncomfortable. If you ever see me, like there'll be TV spots and stuff for the book. You're going to see it on my face because I'm going to be like, yes, thanks so much for having me. And then in my eyes, you can just see like, I am so uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> it's just so hard to to promote. But mm. I am trying to hold really fast to this. I'm I'm a big fan of um, a guy named Jeff Goins, and, and he writes and does a podcast. And he talks about the creator and being creative and to be creative, you have to like get it out there and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think he knows like about the artist's ego <laughs> because like every other podcast, he's basically saying, it's okay. It's okay. Go on. You go on little artist. <laughs> you can do Aww. it and, and yeah. get out there and, and, and sell your stuff. Like it's okay to sell your stuff and, and be proud of what you are and proud of what you're doing. Um, and I do have to ask for help. Like I had to, I, I contact people and I say, Hey, would you like to help promote my book? And I hate doing that. But part of that is my own crap because I am still, I still have a hard time asking people for stuff because I always think there are strings attached and resentment and, you know, where a lot of times people are like, yeah, I totally would love to. That's awesome. And I don't even realize, like, I have all these strings attached to my head, whereas they're like, Kana Bowman just asked me to help. Yay, you know, no problem. And I'm over in my head, like, figuring out how they hate me <laughs> because I asked them to help promote my book. Um, so it's tough. And it's especially tough about this topic because it is. It is a difficult topic, and it can be kind of, What's the word, you know, where you're coming out with your details, your sordid life, you know, when you wear, when you write that tell-all memoir, like, is that what this is? Not really, but I can see how, I, I think in my head, I sort of wonder um, if that's what's going to end up, if that's what people are going to end up thinking, but I don't really think so. I think they've just enjoyed it enough to know that, you know, I'm not doing this for personal gain, and I really do enjoy helping others and talking about it. Um, Do you see writing this book as service to others or are you just a storyteller that can't keep it inside or both? Yeah, I think it's both. What's in your heart as you're writing? Yeah. I'll tell you what, what mainly is in my heart is that I feel like if I'm going to continue as a writer, I will always write about my own life. I'm not much for fiction. I just, I tried that. Plus I kind of suck at it. So I really do like, the genre of memoir I just really like talking about myself because I am so fabulous so anyhow I'm just kidding (laughs) but I that's the genre that I am comfortable with and love to write about so 
how can I not do this? Because that would be a lie, right? If mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to tell you I'm in recovery, recovery is like, it's 99.9% of your life. It has to be. It has to be the most important thing. You learn that from day one. And then I'm not going to write about it. So, and that's actually why I quote kind of came out on my blog way, way long ago. I don't know if you know, like Glennon Melton, mm-hmm. she had a blog, Monastery blog, and I don't even know if she has a blog anymore, but it was this big summer thing that you could send in a blog, and, and she featured one of my pieces, and it was a really big deal, and it was about me being an alcoholic, and I had never written about it before on Momsy blog, and <laughs> when that one hit the presses, you better believe everybody knew then, because it was through her blog, which was like a lot of readers, huge. so yeah, huge, and, and I was like, well... Now I guess everyone knows. So at, at that point, I know it's service because it, it helps others, and it's the best way that I know to do service because I'm lousy at coffee making, and I'm really not good at administration and meetings, like being in the administrative part. But I will tell you also, it helps me. Like writing this last book, there were plenty of nights where I would cry and I would I just sobbed and I felt like I was cleansing my soul and getting through some stuff that I really needed to work through with that relapse that still hadn't surfaced. And I love that. I think God has given me a gift to write. I really do. I say that trying not to sound like I am a God. My God has blessed my writing, but you know what I mean? I think that's the thing that I am supposed to do. But at the same time, I think he gave me that thing to help me make myself sane. So, yeah. yeah, you know, I love that. I think he that's gave so me the gift. Oh, sorry. He, just, he gave me the gift, but he also wants me to use the gift to help myself. Exactly. And others. And, others. So. and I feel like you sort of know when you're working in that capacity of I'm using my gifts, I'm doing what I like, and I'm helping the world move forward a little bit by doing this. Like, I really feel there's there's not one of us who tell a story of recovery that has a unique story. Not one of us. No. We're all, no. We're all telling our details, but we're all also speaking a kind of a universal truth. So yep. I, I always feel that for myself, too, as a, as a blogger or on this show or whatever I do is like, listen, I'm not, I'm no guru. Like, I've got nothing new to tell you here, but yeah. I happen to have a big mouth and I'm willing to <laughs> talk. So let's yeah. use that. <laughs> and, I love yeah. that. I love that. And I think yeah. also, like, that helps me because I was just, I was rereading um, Drinking a Love Story, and I'm like, dang, she wrote my book. Like, she came out with it a long before I did, and it's better than mine. And then I realized it's always the same. Like, it doesn't matter. I could be reading Augustine Burroughs' book. I could be reading Nancy Carr's book. Mm-hmm. I could be reading... Mary cars, I think I meant. And then I just, they're all the same, but we're all so different. I was just, Mm -hmm. and like Lisa Smith, I got to meet her, the um, girl walks out of a bar. Mm -hmm, Her book, mm -hmm. totally not like mine. And yet, totally like mine, you know? So I love that. I really do. Yeah. 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 It's true. Yeah. And I I also think that's so amazing is that, um, the perpetuity of it. I mean, you wrote your first book, 2015, and this one now, and yet, you know, there's there's some um, 15-year-old girls out there who might pick up a copy 15 years from now, 
you know, they they yeah. don't have a problem right now, but when they're a young mom and maybe something is spinning out of control in their life. And that's what I love about it too, is that it's an ongoing resource and you know, you'll be, you will have moved on. Your kids will be probably gone from home by then and you'll be in a completely different stage. But what you put out into the universe Mm -hmm. now just resonates for so long. And that amazes me too. I, I sometimes, you know, see little girls, you know, on the street riding their little scooters down the street and, and I kind of think, you look out for each other, you know? We're all, like, yeah. you never know which one of us is going to tell each other something brilliant on the day we need it. it might be 20 years from yeah. now, but <laughs> it's a really... It's the wisdom of this, and, and, and honestly, the wisdom that I have found through women in sobriety, and men too, but really, I mean, I mostly hang out with women. I just find it to be, it's kind of like what we said at the beginning. I think people in recovery are so awesome. <laughs> And we have yeah. such good things to say. And we keep each other lifted up um, in a world that can constantly be sucking us back down again. So it's uh, so important, and especially for mm-hmm. someone like me, an introvert who isolates. <laughs> um, I think getting sober taught me how to talk to people, taught me how to like be in community, and it taught me also how to say no and not have to have I mean, I understand the selection process now with my friends and community and how selective I am and it's okay. And, and just really the value of those real relationships that we have, they're very precious. So I value you that a lot. you ever get frustrated, Dana? This has nothing to do with your book or anything, but just <clears> as you're talking about sort of that growth and having community, do you ever find yourself a little bit frustrated with the people in your life who aren't in recovery, who aren't interested in recovery, and you're sort of seeing them, you know, yes. not necessarily <laughs> with addiction even, but just like whatever, yes. you're like, gosh, I know a way for you to really work on that, and you're going to feel a whole lot oh better. But, uh, All the time, and I... It comes across in my head as so snotty because I'm like, in my head, I'm like, would you please just get your shit together? <laughs> like, would you <laughs> just come to my side? Come to the light side. And, and and I have so much to share. And, you know, I'm like Gandalf. Like, look, let me just tell you all the stuff about recovery. But then, you know, like, it's, then I'm like, whoa, Nelly, hold on, reel it back, reel it in they're going to think you're cray cray and it's also not your deal. But I do, I feel like a lot of times my relationships with my friends who are not in recovery are like on a different shelf. And a lot of times that shelf is not, it's not the one I would reach for first, you know what I mean? And it's also just on a different, we're just, I just have to dial in kind of a different level of emotion and feels with them and just know that a lot of times it's just not, we're not going to communicate Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. maybe in the way that I'd like. And yes, I do get frustrated all the time. And I even, and I have to be careful because that's, you know, what they say that, you know, you deal with your side of the fence and you don't work someone else's whatever and all that. But my husband, there's so many times where he'll look at me and he's like, would you stop <laughs> trying to like AA me into a corner? I'm like, mm-hmm, well, <laughs> I get all superior and I'm like, I don't know, but I'm just saying it doesn't work unless you work. And he's like, get out, get out the room. He's a total normie, but I'll get him on other stuff all the time. And so it is, that's just me. I mean, I know that's being a little annoying, but there is kind of a loneliness when I'm with my recovery friends and then I go and hang out with my other friends and there's a loneliness there where I'm like, they just don't really get me. (laughs) 
Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> that's good, though, because if that wasn't there, if that, if that loneliness or like a little bit of disconnect wasn't there, then I wouldn't seek out the, the friends in recovery. So I think that helps keep me, you know, that keeps me grateful for them and seeking them. So that's good. Yeah, and I, certainly, I certainly find that there's there's people in recovery too that aren't open to to growing or to new ideas. They've got their very rigid way of, oh, yeah. of yeah. being sober, and that works for them. I'm like, okay, that's a no trespassing for me because I do not want to mess yeah. with your recovery. So, and and I have yeah. friends that are uh, normies or not normies. I don't know, but they're struggling, and I'm. And they're still open, like even though they're not, they wouldn't call themselves as being in recovery, they want to hear the stuff, you know, like, yeah. like they love the slogans and they're like, oh, that's a good one, you know. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Let me write that down. So, yeah. So it's kinda, say, it's, I, I totally came up with that and instead it's like an AA thing, like you've heard for 20 years, but you're like, oh, no, I that was all me. <laughs> yeah. I made that one up myself. <laughs> <laughs> No, you must have better friends than I do because, oh, God forbid this this ever gets out to them because I feel like most of my friends are like, Dana, I'm fine. (laughs) like, darn it. Just make me laugh. That's enough, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My upbringing was such that we are givers of uh, opinions. That's what we do. That's that's what my family does. And so we are givers of opinions, and like 90% of the time that opinion is not wanted. And so it's just... It's, I've had to really work on reeling it in because, yeah, it, yeah, it's it can be helpful. very, yeah, it can be kind of annoying. Well, I have, yeah, do I you that. have something something else that you were going to read for me? I know I kind of threw yeah, it at you just before we went to air. I could hear you flipping pages at the. <laughs> I was flipping, and I have rambling. I have, oh, and I don't have dialogue in this one, so it's not as weird. Okay, Okay. so this is from the chapter, How to Master the Ugly Cry, and this is after the relapse had just occurred, and my, uh, just, I'm not going to, like, give it all away, (laughs) spoiler alert, Um, I do relapse, (laughs) and that that does happen in the book, Um, but I won't tell you, like, all the details behind it, but I will tell you that one of the main details was, it was Christmas, and the Christmas holidays um, had clunked themselves up in my brain as there's those expectations again as I wanted this to be quote the best Christmas ever and along with a lot of other things um the relapse occurred I I can't really go into why unless you want to like make this podcast four hours or just read the book so we'll we'll just skip the whole why exactly it happened (laughs) and I'll I'll go into the, the reading um Okay, my alcoholism, this is where we are. I had started drinking again over Christmas break. Uh, my alcoholism had shoved a sock in my brain, tied it up, put it in the closet, which is a weird analogy, but that's really how it felt. There was more room in the closet because the warm bottle of vodka had moved back down to the kitchen because I was tired of endlessly climbing the stairs for refills. I hid it behind the flour container, and I figured Brian wasn't going to bake anytime soon, so I was safe. There wasn't much more to say about that New Year's Eve. It had a high-pitched, amped-up polarity provided by me because this is going to be the best New Year's Eve ever. And my husband provided a sort of puzzled amiability. He didn't know, by the way, that the relapse had happened. One, because he's kind of clueless and I love him. And two, because I'd really done a good job of hiding it. And I only had 
the relapse was only over a period of seven days. And so I think if it had continued, he would have figured it out. But I ended up just telling him that night. Um, while my children picked at the adult crappy food, drank Sprite out of plastic champagne glasses and spilled the Sprite and then hopped right into the kiddie ride that I had created for them. But still the evening had a frantic feel to it, like the exhausted, sticky end of a night at Carnival. At one point, I considered putting some sort of, some of my, quote, special drink, that was the vodka, in a plastic champagne glass. I mixed, I missed, sorry, the actual glasses in which I could put a drink. The slender, delicate stem of a wine glass balanced so prettily between my fingers like a conductor's baton. A heavy, manly crystal rocks glass felt like a heavy weapon, ready to throw at someone at a moment's notice if needed. When I used to drink the manly brown stuff that I poured into those rock glasses, their weight tethered me and kept me from wafting away altogether. And then there was the impossible and tippy martini glass. It made me feel like I was on an episode of Mad Men until I spilled it, inevitably, which I always did. And how could I forget the champagne flute, which makes any drink into its own decoration? However, I did not put the special drink in a plastic champagne glass. At least I did one intelligent thing that night. Doing so would have resulted in me being more careful with my intake because that glass could have had the chance of being mixed in with the other glasses sitting around. Therefore, it might not have gotten so totally, I might not have gotten so totally blitzed drunk as I did. All this led to the ugly version of Dana showing up in a much shorter amount of time than anticipated. Of course, the ugly version of Dana was not part of the plan, but show up, she did. Somewhere in between the main course and our fancy flan thing that I made for dessert that no one liked because it was rubbery and tasted like sweet eggs. Drunken baking wins again. I started to get that uneasy and fractionalized realization that I was very not okay. There are levels of inebriation in alcoholism. We have the gentle, glowy inebriation that we long for, that we would write love letters to if we could, because it is so elusive for us. There is also the frenetic, super energized inebriation that makes all sorts of household chores super easy. If the cat boxes are in their worst state or your husband gets trapped under a car, this is the most opportune level. Then there is sleepy inebriation that results in sleeping. You don't even get to enjoy the inebriation. You're just passed out on the couch with your drool, and hopefully no one takes a picture. There's also angry inebriation that is pretty awful and ugly, and no one ever thinks that will happen. No one starts out with a couple of margaritas thinking, well, in about an hour and a half, I'm going to alienate all my friends on social media and probably reduce my children to tears. Cheers. But the angry inebriation level is often paired with total humiliation in inebriation. <laughs> total humiliation inebriation is often difficult to remember, so that's a plus. But the level that I had reached on New Year's Eve was past all that. And I'm going to stop there. So <laughs> let the suspense build. Is it hard to read that? Is it hard to go back there? I mean, do you feel it in your chest when you're reading it, the feeling you that know, you had? It's fine until I get to that last sentence, and then I read it, and I'm like, it makes me sick to my stomach. I just mm-hmm. feel so sad and stupid. Like, I just wrote about this recently. I wrote an article about relapse and being in the church and being a Christian, and there's something about coming out to your church the first time where you're like, I'm an alcoholic. And my church is like, Oh, Dana, we love you. Oh, let's help. Oh yeah. 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 But then they're all like, so now you're okay. Right. (laughs) 
when the relapse. Wait, didn't we fix you last, last month? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're done, and, you know, she's mm-hmm. our token alcoholic, and then if anyone ever calls the church she needs help with booze and alcoholism, they're like, oh, let's call Dana. She's the expert. Right. And and then that's it, because anything after that is uncomfortable, like if you mess up, and I did. And so with the relapse, it's just so being shameful. Like, you feel like, I got it. I had it. I, And then I just dumped it, and I still to this day could not tell you exactly why that relapse happened. There wasn't a big emotional mess. I wasn't looking at a divorce or anything. I wasn't looking at sickness. I was bored and really not even that bored. I was busy too. So I, that's why relapse is so terrifying because there's really a lot of times there are reasons there's stuff that happens that causes it like, you know, it's like situational depression. Well, I think there can be situational relapse. But mm-hmm. I think there's times when relapse is just a mother beeper. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the F word, and I didn't know if I could do that here. So Thank you for not. We don't want the <laughs> dreaded explicit warning on our iTunes. No so. explicit warnings. The mother, <laughs> and that's it, and all the fall do. But it just has no rhyme or reason gets to you for no reason. I, I, I mean, there are reasons, and I'm still working it out. But mm-hmm. I never will know. Like, like well, I know this might be getting a little too woo-woo, but, you know, why do people get cancer? Why do certain people have um, horrible things happen to them? Why does relapse happen? If we sit and try to figure it out, there's times when I need to kind of understand it and kind of get through it, but I will never probably know the whole thing. So I know why exactly. relapse happened. It's because I'm an alcoholic. There you go. How's that? What has it taught you, though, on the other <laughs> side of it? Even if you can't identify exactly why, has it increased your vigilance? It's, yeah. It's taught me that I don't have to identify it, that I don't have to control it. Because identifying it and figuring it out and, and getting it all mapped out in my brain, that's a part of me trying to control this thing. And, and that's part of the, I had to let that go. Like, I had to mm-hmm. just let go and say, I just went plumb crazy and if I'm not careful and if I don't go to meetings and, you know, I, 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 it's, it's the oldest story in the book. You come back from a relapse and you go, okay, now I'm going to take it seriously. I get it. And I, mm-hmm. I do have to say, God forbid, if I ever relapsed again or if anything like that ever happened to me again, um, I would do the same thing. I would give myself the grace. I would move on and move forward because, Never say never, right? It taught me humility. It it rubbed me through shame big time, and then it taught me what shame is and how I can say ixnay to shame and, and move on. And it taught me what humility and being humble and understanding guilt and feeling guilty, which are legit and understandable, and you can heal from that. I don't think you can heal too well from shame. Um, there's a difference in my opinion. And it taught me vigilance and, and really taking things a lot more seriously the second time around. My brother had died. This is the part that's most, I think, just horrific. My brother had died from alcohol poisoning a month after my relapse happened. So he died in January. I got sober January 1st. If I, and I didn't know about my brother being that sick at that point. It's a long story, but he had kind of disappeared. We didn't know where he was or what was going on. And it was all just God. If 
if I hadn't gotten sober and I had still been drinking when I had found out about Chris, I probably would have kept drinking and I probably would have ended up just like him. So I went into speaking at my brother's funeral with a month sober under my belt. I didn't tell a soul. And I spoke at his funeral about step 11, which is constantly keeping him with you, your higher power with you, constantly checking in, you know, and it was wonderful and amazing. Um, but probably the hardest thing I've ever done. So. That is heartbreaking. And I, first of all, I'm, I'm so sorry <laughs> about your brother. <laughs> it's just yeah, thank you. hard to even conceive of that. D- does it, does your, um, I, my experience, and uh, I haven't lost a sibling, but I have lost friends. Um, and, my experience with people that I've cared about that have passed away is that surprisingly my relationship with them continues in a way. My conversation with them or my insight or my um, how I feel about them changes and evolves as they as time goes on. Um, it isn't stuck at where it was at when they passed. And I was thinking about you and your brother earlier today and wondering if in some sense, do you feel like your brother is kind of along for the ride in your recovery? Um, oh, yes. And I know that. It's so weird. Like, you're giving me chills because <laughs> that is exactly how I feel. I feel like he's been here for all of it. And I feel like he has given me, like, knowledge about how to get through this and be as, you know, like, open and honest as possible about the whole situation. I just feel like, and, it, and I know this sounds really hokey, but it's like the angel is here, you know? Yeah. He's walking yeah. me through it. And there are times when I even talk to him and say, Chris, I'd really like to drink today. And then I hear him go, shut up, Dana. <laughs> And and here's why you don't want to do that, and and, and on and on. Yeah. And so, I, I'm not one for angels and all that stuff, but I really do feel like he's watching. And my mm-hmm. brother was always, like, pretty hardcore with me. If he didn't like something I was doing, he would tell me, like, mm-hmm. adamantly. <laughs> he got on me for stuff all the time, and so... It was very, um, I can totally hear his tone. I can totally hear his voice. And I can totally hear him saying, don't you eat in, you know. And I have my dad who's doing the same thing, and he's alive and well on this earth. But my my sweet dad is so sweet. And it's nice to hear my brother's, like, ticked off voice. <laughs> like a little tough love straight from beyond. Yeah. Because my and my husband's the same way. My uh, my husband's obviously not in recovery. He's a normie, but he's so sweet and kind about this whole thing. But sometimes it's nice. I I know it sounds weird, but just to have somebody be like, Dana, shut shut up. <laughs> just yeah. stop. You idiot. Just stop now. Yeah. And listen to me. So Aw. give just well, gives me the straight dope. 
As I expected, an hour of chatting with you has absolutely whizzed by because uh, <laughs> we have so much ground to cover so quickly, and you're just so fun to talk to, Dana. Um, we have been able to, um, you know, talk about sad things and happy things and in-between yeah. things and, and buttering toast for uh, eight yeah. hours at night. <laughs> so um, I think that um, just by this conversation alone, our listeners have a pretty good snapshot of what it's like to spend a little time in the mind of Dana Bowman. <laughs> and, um, and I recommend that they uh, definitely get both books. Um, the first book from 2015 is called Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery, and your new book, How to Be uh-huh. Perfect Like Me. And both are available yeah. um, through links on your website, correct? Mumsyblog.com. I know, yeah. There's lots of links, and they're available through independent booksellers and also like the biggies, um, Amazon, Barnes Noble. And I'm also, this is so exciting, I am also now embarking on a book tour. So, I will have information on my Momsy blog page about, I think I'm going to call it events, and I'm going to talk about where I'm going to be. Um, we're focusing on the Midwest for now because Midwesterners really are needing a dose of perfect. So <laughs> we're going to start in my neck of the woods and be coming around like Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, St. Louis, that kind of stuff. Um, and then if the book generates good sales, we'll continue and uh, go from there. And you'll get to see me on TV going, I am really uncomfortable. <laughs> we'll be sending <laughs> you good time. vibes, knowing now how you Thank truly you. feel about it. Well, you know, know what? The world is pretty tough on moms right now. And um, in addition to everything else they're dealing with, they're sort of being marketed to with guns a-blazing, with mommy juice and, and rosé oh, yeah. all day and all that stuff that really – you know, it's meant to yeah. be cute and fun and lighthearted, and unfortunately for far too many of us, it's a really, it's a deadly thing. So I'm really grateful for your books and your service to women of all ages and, and people in recovery, but especially to moms who who need your voice. So thank you so much well, for all you're you doing. thank you for having me. I, I love these interviews, and this is a great interview. You really got me some of those questions. It's awesome. So. Ha-ha. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> That's good to know. That is good to know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, good. thanks so much for uh, for tuning in and hearing Dana talk about her book. Again, visit mumsyblog.com to learn more about Dana, to see her cute face, to go with this voice, <laughs> and to uh, to learn where you can buy her book. So we are out of time for this week. That's all for now, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't 
Looking at you in there And the one who met 